being rich in mercy, because of the grace with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. But God, he already knew your issues, but God. He already knew your struggles, but God. He already knew where you was coming from, but God. He already knew what was on your mind and your heart, but God. He already knew all those skeletons in your closet, but God. He already knew about your mouth, but God. He already knew about your attitude, but God. He already knew about your rebelliousness, but God. He already knew about your stubbornness, but God. He already knew about uh, how harmful and hateful you could be, but God. He already knew, but God. <laughs> he already knew, but God steps in, and he doesn't just call a name. <laughs> he didn't just call my name. He called your name. He called you by your first name. What they say? He called you by your government name. He called you by your nickname. He called you by your name. But God, in mercy, because of his great love, but God, but God, but God. Praise God, from whom all blessings Again, it is a privilege, a deep, deep privilege and honor to be with you this week in worship. As we lift up the name of Jesus, may he be exalted in this place. May he be loved and adored, and rightly so, in this place. Because he is infinite and preeminent. He is worthy of our worship and affections. Let, let us give the Lord a praise for his kindness towards us even on this week. Amen. Amen. Indeed, I'd like to welcome each and every one of you to this church gathered at Forest Baptist one more time. Uh, may we never take for granted Again, the opportunity to worship one more time. It is good to be in the service one more time. It's good to be here. Uh, I'd like to express our, our, our deep gratitude uh, to those who, who did the hard work of planning and executing our uh, Harvest Festival on yesterday. We had a wonderful time. Uh, each and every one of those who came out and participated, we had... Uh, a bunch of kids here running around, and, and the church still standing, still standing. Uh, we had a good time, so thank you for, for coming out. Uh, on this morning, if you would turn back with me in your Bibles or on your device to Revelation, the second chapter, as we're working through the seven letters that uh, Jesus has given to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, let us pick up where we left off last week 
in Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. Revelation, the second chapter, we'll be reading this morning again, verses 12 through 17. If you are able, if you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning. This is the word of God. Please hear the voice of Christ. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may, might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated as we pick up from last week on part two on this letter to a compromised church, letter to a compromised church. If you would, pray with me as we look into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being so great, for being so amazing. The fact that your grace calls us by name. Father, you already knew who we were when you called us. You already knew how, how fickle our emotions are. You already knew how up and down we would be. But yet you, because you called us by name, you called us to be a part of your eternal family. And for that, dear God, we just say thank you. Father, thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Father, thank you for your patience and your benevolence. Thank you, Lord, for loving us even when we don't love ourselves. Father, thank you for loving the mess we make and changing us and using the, even that for your glory and for your name's sake, dear God. Father, thank you for taking broke-down folks just like us and putting into us the treasures of Christ Jesus. Father, we're not worthy to come before you this morning. We're not worthy to pray. We're not worthy to read our Bibles. We're not worthy to sing praises to your name. But thanks be to God that that son, Jesus Christ, has come on our behalf. And we can now come boldly before that throne of grace because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's grace. And we thank you for it, oh God. And we ask that you will pour out your grace upon us this morning that we would have eyes to see, 
and ears to hear. May we not think too highly of ourselves that we will miss what you're saying. Father, help us to stand, to be the church of Christ in a culture that hates Jesus. Help us to be bold witnesses, Lord, that those lost in this dark and dying world will be able to see the lighthouse of the gospel and be rescued from the rocks and from the waves. Use me as you see fit, O oh God, for I'm nothing. You are everything. We do love you and thank you. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. And all God's people say it together, amen. Amen. You know, I don't, I don't know where you, growing, where you grew up, when you grew up, how you grew up, but sometimes growing up, there's these collective expressions that we've experienced together. I may not have been born in your house. But, but we have some of these same experiences as we grow up. And it, and it doesn't matter uh, where you grow up, but you have probably heard someone say, because I said so, that's why. And you've probably heard somebody say to you, as long as you're on my roof, you're going to do X, Y, and Z. Or maybe, or maybe you've, you've been the recipient of, don't make me come back there. Or, you know, one of the favorites that, uh, that we hear, don't make me turn this car around. <laughs> uh, but, beloved, one of the ones that, that's been on my mind lately, because I find myself saying it a lot, is the phrase, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? You know, didn't I tell you? It implies that some, some sort of instruction has been given, but it hasn't been received. Didn't I tell you? It's an age old expression that somebody's been disobedient. They haven't listened. Didn't I tell you to do your homework? Didn't I tell you to clean up your room? Didn't I tell you? not to be out uh, uh, past the streetlights being on. Didn't I tell you not to wipe? Didn't I tell you? There's usually some form of instruction that is just not being obeyed. And, and we've all been there on that, on that side of didn't I tell you. Because uh, when we look back over our lives, we haven't always been obedient. Uh, we haven't always done what we have, post, we have supposed to do. But you know what? As the church, we don't want to metaphorically hear from Jesus, didn't I tell you? But what do we want to hear? Well done, thy good and faithful servant. We want to hear, well done, you have accomplished, you have done, you have uh, uh, led a life faithful to what I have called you to. And as Christ church, we have been called to go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. We, we have been called to step into this world and to live in such a way that people will witness our lives and be directed to Jesus Christ. We have been called to open up our mouths 
and to declare the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that same gospel that had we not heard, we would be lost. We've been called to make Mark and to mature disciples for Christ. That's our purpose. And beloved, when we get to glory, we do not want to hear, did not tell you. Because then that would apply. We have not been obedient to what we have been called to do. We cannot be obedient to this call if we are compromised. We, we started talking about what it meant to be compromised. This definition of compromise, unable to function optimally because of underlying disease, harmful environment, exposure, or the side effects of a course of treatment. So in a sense, it's like, it's like having a compromised immune system. To have a compromised immune system is saying that uh, as you are living in this world, there are certain bacteria that, that, can get, that, that can touch your life and cause an infection to make you sick. Uh, if you had a, a, a normal or a healthy immune system, you would be able to fight against the diseases, the bacteria, and the viruses that are out uh, uh, about the, 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 the people, but because your immune system has been compromised, it's been weakened, you can't remain healthy, and, and because you can't remain healthy, now you got to take days off the job, and, and, and now you're losing money, and now your child has to stay home from school. There, beloved, there are consequences to having a weakened immune system. When it comes to the church, if we have a weakened immune system, that what I'm referring to is our orthodoxy and what we believe to be true about what Jesus Christ has called us to do. If that becomes weakened, we cannot stand against the viruses, the bacteria, the stinking thinking that's out amongst the culture, and we will fall and fail and not be able to accomplish God's purposes for our lives. God has a purpose and a plan for his church. But in order for the church to stand uncompromised within the world, the church must be uncompromised within itself. In order for the church to stand uncompromised within the world, the church must be uncompromised within itself or herself. Simply, that means to be faithful to Jesus on the outside. We have to be faithful to Jesus on the inside. And last week, we began in this text with two primary thoughts. First, the reality that, that, that satanic pressure, there is satanic pressure to conform, it is real. Satanic pressure to conform, it's real. In verse 13, Jesus, he, he starts out by, by, by saying, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. He's not per se talking about their house, but he's talking about the neighborhood that their house is in. He says, I, I know where you dwell. And, I, and let, let, me, let me step away from that for just one second. But, beloved, I'm so glad that Jesus knows where I dwell. See, for the Christian, Jesus knows where you dwell. That means he understands your struggle. That, he, that, that, he, 
not unfamiliar with the problems and the hurt and the situations that you have had to endure in your life. Jesus knows about your spouse. He knows about your family. He, he knows about your supervisor. He, he knows about your children. He, he knows what's going on in your life. He says, I know where you dwell. He know your address. Hey, Jesus, he don't, he don't need to look you up in this context because he really don't know your number. He knows your number. Y'all remember back in the day, you ain't have a contact book that you just put somebody's name. You actually had to memorize their number back in the day. See, Jesus is saying, I know your actual number, not just your contacts, and I know where you dwell. I know, where you, I know what you're facing. Beloved, Jesus is saying, in, in, that, in that little phrase, Jesus is saying to us today, I know what you're going through, and you have a Savior that's suffering. But not only am I familiar with your overcome all of your suffering. And <laughs> saying, I dwell, he's saying, I ain't scared to roll up on your block and to do something and to make an incredible change, not only in, uh, in your life, but in the lives of those houses in your neighborhood. I, I, I know where you dwell. He says, I, I know where you dwell, and in Pergamum, this city was filled with paganism and idolatry and, and this imperial worship, the worship of Caesar in Rome. But what's slightly different about Pergamum, as we look throughout the world, there are places in the world where satanic oppression and opposition it just seems to be greater. Satan already, the, he's the prince of this world. That he has temporary control and authority to, to steal, kill, destroy, to distract. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded their eyes to, to keep people from trusting in Jesus. He, he has this temporary rule and reign, but there are just some areas in this world where it just seems to be super hard. Pergamon was that type of place. Satanic pressure to conform to the world is real. If you don't notice, you just need to look and pay attention. From this pressure, we see that there's this pressure to embrace this cultural Christianity over biblical Christianity. We dug into it a lot last week, but, but simply, cultural Christianity really don't, doesn't ask you to surrender and to sacrifice your life. Cultural Christianity is like a Boy Scout patch. You just keep on living. If you mark off this check in the box, then you could just put the badge on your jacket and show everyone that, look, I'm, I, I'm a good Boy Scout. I'm a good Girl Scout. See, but cultural Christianity can't save you. Cultural Christianity may get you some glory on this side of heaven, but cultural Christianity doesn't have a Savior who bled and died. That's biblical Christianity. And biblical Christianity says, let, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, biblical Christianity says you got to die. You can't keep talking like you talk. You can't keep acting how you want to act. You can't keep going where you want to go because your life has been surrendered and submitted to Jesus Christ. Biblical Christianity has a Savior who hung 
bled and died and was crucified, and he laid in that grave three days, but then he got up with all power in the sense. See, see, biblical Christianity has some power attached to it. See, we can't do what God always wants us to do, and we need power in order to overcome. The Holy Spirit has to be working. Beloved, I don't know about y'all. If the Holy Spirit wasn't in my heart uh, uh, going through the week sometimes, uh, had it not been, not the Lord on my side, had it not been the Lord in my heart, what would I have said? What would I have done? If we're going to be Christians, we have to understand that you can't do it in your own strength. Can't be all pious and glorious uh, like you want to be because God has called you to something bigger and better than what you could actually be. It is only fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That's why we have to have the Holy Spirit ruling and reigning within us in order to live the life that he's called us to. We need biblical Christianity. That Romans 12 and 2 Christianity, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means that you can't just be around Christian stuff. You can't just come here on Sunday morning and act like you're Christian. You got to be a Christian on the inside. Your mind has to be renewed. And that only comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Pergamon was commended by Jesus for holding fast to their faith and not denying the name of Jesus. You know, that's, that's one way you can know if you're saved or not. One way you know that you belong to Jesus is if you persevere in spite of opposition. Isn't that what 1 John 2 and 19 tells us? There was, a, there was some that was in the church who left the church, and, and, and John says, they, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Ah. So one way to know that you really saved is the fact that you still rolling with Jesus. One of the ways that you know you saved is like you still want to pray. Hey, you still want to read his word. Oh, beloved, and you halfway like the people of God today. See, that's how you know you belong to Jesus. It's called the perseverance of the saints. If you really belong to Jesus, then you're going to stay with Jesus. Why? Why? Is it because you are sophisticated and smart and got it all together? No. Because the Word of God reminds us that Jesus says that all who come to me uh, remain in my hands. If you, be- if you stand with Jesus, that means that you belong to Jesus. If you remain with Jesus, that means he got you. You don't got him. He got you. Oh, beloved. We act, we act like we hold. How you doing? I'm just holding on. You ain't holding on. Jesus is holding on to you. Don't get it twisted. You ain't struggling, holding on like that cat in the poster. No, you don't fail. You lay lifeless, and Jesus in glory comes down and picks you up and, and rocks you like his baby and say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I, I will give you a rest. Stop so hard. I, I died for that. Stop trying to be so tough. I, I died for that. Stop trying to be, get it all right. I died for that. That's how Jesus works in our life. He comes and get us out of the muck and the mire and rescue us. We were dead. 
in our trespasses and sin. But God came and got us, breathed life into us, and did something with us. So their ability to stand is evidence that they belong to Jesus still. There's a lot of ways that we can go right there. I'm a, let me throw this out. Everybody who say they saved ain't saved. Everybody, just like everybody who say they're a member of Forest Baptist Church, ain't a member of Forest Baptist Church. I'm sorry, I'm just going to meddle just a little bit, just a little bit today. Go, go with me. The rubric for if you're a member of Forest Baptist Church, do you come to church? Do you give to the church? Do you serve the church? That's it. It's not if you came and got baptized when you was little. It's not that your name was on a roll at some point of your life. Do you come to church? Do you give to the church? And do you serve the church? See, the church here is not the building. Do you fellowship with us? Do you give so we can do ministry together? And, and like, like, do these things take place? Do, do you serve somebody else besides yourself? So if, 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 if there are requirements to be a, a, a member of force, there are certainly requirements to be a member of God's family. Let me, I'll, I'll go back now. See, Pergamum was able to stand. They, that's how they knew that they were part of the family of God. But their strength was fading fast because of compromise in their midst. Compromise had come. So secondly, we, we looked at conformity begins with compromise. There were some in the church. There were some who were part of the church. But they still had a belief system that was contrary to the beliefs of the body of Christ. Their, beliefs, their belief system was uh, consistent with the teaching of the day over the teaching of Jesus Christ. What do I mean? He, Jesus, uh, he exposes them that uh, there are some in the midst that have uh, begun, uh, began following the teaching of Balaam. This, this teaching of the Nicolaitans, this is the teaching of Balaam. And we look back in Numbers, and we saw that that teaching was, it was a teaching that uh, caused, them, uh, caused Israel to stumble and began to eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. So let, let me just dig into that just, just a little bit, because when he's saying, and they, and they eat food sacrificed to idols, in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, Paul is talking about that in the market that sometimes there may be food sacrificed to idols, but that Christians, they, they could actually partake of that because there's really, it really wasn't a way of knowing if that food was sacrificed to idols or, or not so, that, so they could go into the market and just, and just buy meat and people wouldn't look at them like, what are you doing? Because it was just, it was just meat. 
But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, he goes and begins to talk about, but it's different when you go, when you go to the parties that were sacrificing meat and you hung out at the party eating the meat that everybody else was eating because everyone at that party knew where that meat came from. And then there may be a brother or sister of Christ in the midst with you at the party and say, well, it must be okay to be at the party because if they're at the party, it must be okay. So when Jesus is saying eating food sacrificed to idols, this, this teaching that, that Balaam, that those following Balaam, Balaam were mixed up in, it was a teaching that you could be a Christian and still embrace sin. You could be saved and still. You, you, know, you, you just add whatever and still that you got. Because we do. Oh, you could be saved and. Oh, you could be saved and. Now, I, I don't want, now, I don't want to meet it in a legalistic way because we have a lot of Christian liberty and freedoms in Christ. But you know what I'm talking about. And, and in the case of Balaam and Balak, that you could be a Christian and still go to the party with the false gods and eat that meat and practice sexual immorality, that sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage, fornicate, that, that you can be Christian and still be involved in sexual sin. So, like, the belief that you can be a Christian and still be a drunkard. You could be a Christian and still be a weed head. That you could be a Christian and still be a drug addict. Now, now again, let me, let me qualify that. I'm not saying that a Christian can't struggle in those areas. But what he's saying is that your way of life is, this is just me. That's just our role. So, so this, this teaching, if we're looking at Scripture, would say that you can't be a Christian and just have an attitude with everybody all the time. Uh-oh. You can't be a Christian and just cuss people out and say what you want to say and hurt people's feelings because you want to. Uh, you can't be a Christian and have a root of bitterness so bad that you won't forgive nobody even if they say sorry five times. Like, so, he's, so when we expand this and look at Scripture, you can't be a Christian and still do your own thing. Because if I have died and my life is now hidden in Christ, whose life is supposed to be shown? Not mine. Not mine. When, when we have baptism and somebody goes into the water, that is symbolic that they have died to themselves and they're being raised to walk in the, the oldness of life, uh, the, the used to be in life, the newness of life. That, that is signifying that a rebirth has come. You know what, beloved? We need to go back to using old type, old school language. Instead of asking people, are they saved or they go to church, you start asking them, have you been born again? Because we need to get to the, re, uh, the new birth, the, the birth where the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, and they say, 
Oh, my God, I have been sinful against you, my God. I have, I, I have been living my own life. The Holy Spirit has opened up their mind to their sin in such a way that they say, I have to turn and live for Jesus. That's what it means to be born again. Not have you been churched or have you been baptized. Have you been born again? Because if, if, if we get back to that type of language, that guards us from compromise. That guards us from idolatry and immorality. That, that guards us from, from exalting the culture over Christ. And we said last week, all this compromise begins when we or we believe someone who denies the authority and sufficiency of God's word. It's, I, it's in the Bible, but I just don't believe it. I, have, have you ever said this? I know what God says, but, oh, Lord, as soon as you put that but there, you in trouble. If you if you in a, if you in a conversation, with, help them out. If you're in a conversation with somebody, be a good brother, sister in Christ. If, 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 if they're going on a tangent and they say, I know I'm saved, but just say, hold up, just stop. Just stop them right there. Don't even go there because your butt is about to go into sin. All right? Just, just hold them right there. Your butt is about to fall into some sin. The word, but, you know, the word. What? So what does this mean, though? Like, how, how do we live this? How do we walk this out? And the Lord was really dealing with me on this. And, and to be honest, I was, I was going to take the easy road. And I was going to go into the, the whole thought of, uh, and the defense of the exclusivity of Christ and how Acts 4 and 12, there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. I was about to pull out John 14, 6, and I am the way and the truth and the life. And then compare that to how uh, the, in, in our culture we have more of a universalistic type mentality where we think everyone goes to heaven as long as you're good outweighs your bad. Now, I was going to walk in all of that. And they come up with like holding to a teaching that does not affirm the exclusivity of Jesus Christ hinders our ability to urgently evangelize the lost. So if, so if we personally hold that all people go to heaven, then we won't have that burden to actually share Jesus because we think everyone's going to heaven anyway. See, but that's not true, according to Scripture. But what I actually want to look at is a harder issue but it's one that is so prevalent today. So take, for instance, one hot-button issue in the culture, matters of human sexuality and sexual ethics. See, this is hard. God, when it comes to human sexuality and sexual ethics, walk with me. Turn your Bibles to Genesis, the first chapter. This, this, is, this is what it means when he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In the sense that, I hear what the world says, but 
I want to hear what God has to say. That's what it means to not be conformed to the world. See, to be conformed to the world is to believe it because it's a Facebook post. But to have your mind transformed is to say, I see what they say, but what does God say? So you bring everything back through this filter of Scripture. So the, the Scriptures give us God's eternal standard for human sexuality. So in Genesis, the first chapter, if we look at verses 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So when it comes to to gender roles and gender, God gives us his definitions and his eternal standard, not temporal standard, his eternal standard of whom he has created our personhood. So attached to our personhood, is not an option to identify how I want to identify, but how does God identify me? And he says male and female. In the second chapter, Scripture gives us God's eternal standard for human sexual ethic. Genesis, the second chapter, verses 24 and 25, God, he he creates woman because it is not good that man should be alone, and then says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What's what's going on right here? God is saying, I've created male and female to be together in oneness, this this oneness of intimacy, this, this this oneness of companionship, so, so God, he's creating this first marriage. In this first marriage, we see the blueprint, a man and a woman together uh, for life under the covenant of marriage. So what God is saying, sexual activity is a gift given to those who are within the covenant of marriage, one man, one woman for life. But God gives that standard But then someone may say, well, that's the Old Testament. But Jesus affirms this standard in Matthew, the 19th chapter. In Matthew, the 19th chapter, turn with me to verses 4 through 6. Matthew, the 19th chapter, verses 4 through 6. Jesus is dealing with another sin issue of divorce. God hates divorce. And in verse 4, he says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning and made them what? Male and female. That's God's, his eternal standard of sexuality. And, And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, so Jesus affirms God's eternal standard of sexual 
uh, identity and sexual intimacy. It is a gift given to humanity to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage, the union between one man and one woman for life. We're walking through the scriptures. So God has this eternal standard. Jesus affirms this standard. But then Paul reminds us that to live anything contrary to God's standard will lead to eternal punishment. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. Beginning with verse 9, going through verse 11. So scripture gives us God's eternal standard for heaven. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God being eternal life. So he's saying that, that there is an eternal standard, and if you don't live according to God's eternal standard, not temporal. See, that's the thing. We get up in these temporal, temporary ideas in, 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 a, in a generation, and we want to hold on to that. But God says, I'm outside of time. See, but watch this. This is why we have hope. Because verse 11 says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, you was acting just like that, but God came and got you. So now what does that do to me? If I'm able to be obedient to God's standard, I can't. Uh, uh, with a, 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 a pride or hubris say, I got it together. I stand up and say, but God has changed me. Had it not been for his grace, no telling where I would be. And it produces as you met. So it doesn't produce a, 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 a piety that looks down the eyes like, look at them. They don't know. Then they acting like this, and it doesn't cause you to hate on people, but it causes you to have a heart of compassion that you're willing to help people. As a matter of fact, in this, God has given us a command on how we're supposed to act, not to just Christians, but to everybody. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verse 37, what does God say? Jesus is speaking, and he says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. What? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he's saying, Christian, when you come upon somebody who is not living my eternal standard, you don't get, a, you don't get the, a choice to talk about them. You don't get, a, you don't get that. You can't dog them. You can't act like you're better than them. Because had it not been for me saving you, 
you would be just like, matter of fact, you wouldn't be just like them. You would be worse than them had not grace came and got you. And on top of that, now you are to treat everybody just like you want to be treated. That doesn't give me an option to call anybody out their name. That doesn't give me the opportunity to dog people who don't know Jesus. See, God, he has given us a comprehensive understanding and direction for human sexuality and ethics. Will we listen? So, so in, in, in matters regarding human sexuality and ethics, what's the big deal? Where else can the church of Jesus stand if God has already taken a stand? And it's a big deal because holding to a teaching that does not affirm God's eternal standard for human sexuality and ethics hinders our ability to rightly love the lost. If our standard of sexuality and ethics is just like the world, what's going to make our witness different to show people that that's not the way to eternal life, but this is the way to eternal life? As a matter of fact, I would dare call it unloving to hold God's standard because if you were walking across the street with your friend and you saw a bus coming, but they was running their mouth on the phone and they kept going, would it be loving, to, would it be unloving to grab their hand and to tell them to stop? Is that unloving? No, you just say they life. Allow people to continue in sin, whatever sin it is, and to, and to say, well, that's them, that's their life, and never say anything. That's actually unloving because God has revealed the truth to you. You have the truth and won't tell nobody. Shame on you. We can go on and on with these doctrines and, and beliefs, our, our celebrity worship. We want to we take pictures. We want to do selfies and show everybody who we met. Beloved, who cares who you met? Are they Jesus? Did they die for you? Did they save your soul? Did they write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? You just want everybody to know. You don't even know them, but you got to take a picture with them. Oh, look at this. And I went to this concert, and I, and I got this autograph. It, it, it's fun. It's enjoyable. Don't make it the main thing. Our celebrity worship, our athletic worship, our material worship, and I, I would dare say <laughs> our ancestral worship. And I say that because we're quick to give advice because of what grandma and mama them said and not, by, not because what thus saith the Lord. The word is never wrong. But my mom and my daddy have been wrong a few times. And, but we act like all of this wisdom has come from our parents. They love us. But we worship their wisdom over the wisdom of God. We have to be careful. That's a doctrine built on compromise. 
Let's see if we get finished with this text today. Beloved, we, we, we compromise because of our sinful proclivity, our, 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 our sinful tendency to always love lesser things. In us is this, is this sinful idolatry that wants to worship the creation over the creator. Because that means that I would, I would have to submit myself to someone greater than me. But idolatry says I can worship what I want, when I want, and how I want. So the reason we compromise is we actually have an have a underlying belief that our idols will satisfy us more than God can satisfy us. Why do we run to celebrity worship? Why do we run to material possessions? Because deep down we actually think that those treasures will make more of us than Christ Jesus himself. So we compromise and we, and we pursue these doctrines, we pursue these degrees, we pursue these titles on our job, and we, we pursue everything but Christ, and we compromise because we think that they're going to make something of us. But God says in this word in Romans, if I, if I, I, if I gave you my son, how much more would I give you all things? What is he saying? His son is preeminent, and if he gave us his best already, how much more does he have to give us for us to realize that Jesus is better? If the church is ever going to stand in the midst of satanic influence, if the church is going to stand, you must whole in your beliefs, because we are the church. I had a whole section on what do we do, part of what we do is we confront, compromise with the call to godly confrontation, and I'm, I know I'm throwing off Nepo because I changed everything, I'm sorry, but I, I actually have a, a whole list of scriptures that says if you're a Christian that you're called to godly confrontation. That means that when you see a brother or sister in sin, that you, you, you got to do something. You can't make them change, but you can encourage them to change. Write these down. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 reminds us that if a brother is caught in a sin, that we go and rescue them. James 5, 19 through 20. Jude. Verses 22 and 23. If, 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 if people don't want to hear what we're saying, if they still want to be in their sin, then it, we move to like a Matthew 18, where there's church discipline that's involved. Where we, we go and we share our sin with our brother. If they, brother or sister, if they don't repent, we, we bring somebody else with us. But many times, reason why we don't confront anyone else is because we stuck in our own sin. How are you going to help somebody else get right if you won't get right? <laughs> in the, I've been on a lot, a lot of flights lately going to Zimbabwe, and, but one of the things they say that in the event of an emergency that from the, from the top, your 
your, your, your oxygen will fall down. And, and, and it says specifically, before you help somebody else, you put on your own mask first. Why they say that? Because if you're trying to help somebody else, but you don't have the oxygen flowing for yourself, then you won't pass out and die, then they're going to pass out and die. If you really want to be helpful as a church, you get your life in order, and then you can help somebody else get their life in order. Then guess what? Both of us survive. That's how we deal with compromise. Deal with your own compromise first. Then help somebody deal with theirs. Deal with it together. We confront compromise with the call to biblical repentance. Four A's. Four A's I want to throw out for biblical, biblical repentance. Four A's. We agree. We agree with God about how he feels about the sin. We, we don't just agree because made us feel bad. We agree with God. But then after we agree, we, we accept our responsibility for our sin. It, the devil didn't make me do it. I, I, I chose to be disobedient, so I accept responsibility. But then thirdly, I apologize. I say, Lord, I'm sorry. Honey, I'm sorry. Supervisor, I'm sorry. Teacher, I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? And then the fourth one is you making about face. You, 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 you was going this, you was going left, you need to turn around and go right. Biblical repentance, we agree, we accept, we apologize, and then we make an about face. We don't just say, you know how we do. Somebody's like, sorry. That is not biblical repentance. Or... I'm sorry, but you was getting on my nerves. No, that is not biblical repentance. You can't put a but at the end. Because now you're not accepting responsibility. What's our reward? Verse 17, our reward is this hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it quickly. This, this hidden manna. Manna was that bread from heaven given to the Israelites as they were in the wilderness that sustained them for 40 years. They took some of that manna and they put it away in the Ark of the Covenant to, as a reminder that God sustained them. He provided sustenance. So in, in the sense, in the New Testament, in John 6, they're talking to Jesus about the manna that came from heaven. They say, so are you greater than Moses who gave the children manna from heaven? Then Jesus breaks out and says, I am the bread of life. And in John 6 and, 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 and 48, he says, I am the bread from heaven. So what Jesus, is, what Jesus is saying about this hidden manna, he's saying, you trying to, to have your sustenance from idol worship, feast, and their pagan meat, but I have come to be the bread of life to those who conquer. You busy trying to eat a meal on Thursday, but I'm feeding you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I feed you every day of the week, and you trying to get a meal for Friday. 
So he's saying, instead of the meat sacrifice to idols, I'm just going to give you myself. When he talks about the white stone, there's, there's some uh, various beliefs and understandings. Some believe that the white stone is a vote cast in a court of law for guilty or not, uh, not guilty. A black stone would have been guilty. A white stone would have been not guilty. Some believe the white stone represents admission to a banquet. If you were going to a banquet, you had a certain stone and you would give it to them like, you know, I got a ticket. Some believe that this is one of the, the jewels on the breastplate of the high priest on the, the Urim and the, and the Thummim. Uh, how, 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 how they had the, the names of the 12 tribes on them. And that was the breastplate of judgment. And, and, you, and the priest would use those jewels to help decide what the, what the country should do. No, no, matter, no matter what the white stone specifically means, what it ultimately means is that I'm going to give you right standing before the judgment throne of God. And not only that, with a new name. Beloved, in Scripture, whenever someone was given a new name, it often meant a change in status. When you received a new name in Scripture, they, you had a new identity. Abram becomes Abraham. Paul goes from being known as Saul to Paul. We, we, we see this change from Sarah to Sarah. She has a new identity. She's going to be the mother of nations. There's, there's a new identity. He's saying, I'm going to give you a new identity. And you will be known, and you will know me. This is intimacy forever. Our reward is Jesus himself in intimate relationship forever. Our reward is full, eternal sustenance and acceptance from God through Jesus Christ. Beloved, in order for the church to, to stand uncompromised within the world, the church must be uncompromised within herself. But the issue is we all have been compromised by sin. Human depravity lets us know that because Adam sinned, we all have sinned too. We have that sin flowing through our veins. But you know what, beloved? Jesus in John 3rd chapter, verses 14 to 15, he deals with that sin flowing through our veins. Because in John the 3rd chapter, the, the 14th verse, he begins to point back to the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness with Moses. And they had... They had been sinning against God, so God brings a plague of snakes inside the camp. And then inside the camp, the snakes begin to, to bite the, the, the Israelites and, and infect them with their venom. And, and the venom will begin to course through their veins. And if they didn't deal with the venom in their veins quick enough, they would soon die. So because they understand that they have disobeyed God and they have this this venom running through their veins. They cry out to Moses, Moses, uh, we need help. Go before God and ask him to help us and tell us what to do. And Moses goes before God and God tells him, you, you form a brass serpent and you put it on a stick. And then you take that stick and you go set it up high on a mountain somewhere. And then tell the people that when they get uh, uh, to the point where they have been bitten all they need to do is look up to the, the bronze serpent, and if they will look, then they will live. Jesus in the third chapter is talking about salvation, and he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus saying? What is the cure for compromise? What is the cure for this sin coursing through my veins? He says, I need to look and live. I need to look up, not look out, not look in. I need to look to Jesus because of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. When I look to Jesus, I will be healed from all of my sin and all of my iniquity because that my sin was laid upon him on Calvary's cross. We confront compromise with a call to remembrance. We look to Jesus and the holy, satisfying word of the gospel. We don't want to be a church who hears, didn't I tell you? We want to be a church who hears, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Please impact us as we have compromised in so many ways in so many different areas. Father, please forgive us for our sin and help us to look up and look to Jesus to save us from this sin that is coursing through our veins. We do love you and do thank you. In Jesus' precious and holy name we do pray. Amen.